Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Father Nolan of the Priestly Society of St. Peter, the Fraternal Society of St. Peter, whatever you call it, the FSSP, he gave a homily on whether or not the Pope can be a heretic. Can the Pope be a heretic? Is it possible for the Pope to teach heresy in the material or formal sense? What about Vatican I? What about the divine help the Pope has given? What about all these questions? What about these saints in the past who have opined that it'd be impossible for the Pope to do so? What is the teaching of the Church? These are questions that I think would help a lot of people if they were cleared up. And I think that Father Nolan did a pretty good job. So we're going to go through some of his work here and sort of break this down. Uh, some people ask me to go back on video and not just do audio. Well, this is available on Spotify, iTunes, those sorts of places. It's also available on my Substack. The audios are as well. The audios are, I should say, if you have that app. And um, I prefer speaking, not looking at the camera. Personally, I find that I speak a little bit more clearly. So I'm going to continue doing that. In any case, if you're into watching me talk on YouTube, which is kind of weird, well, here you go. You get to see me in all my glory in my sound booth with a t-shirt on. So let's check out this sermon from Father Nolan. We're going to go through just certain parts here. There's a lot to it. And we're going to go through some of the background information that he talks about. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, we'll uh, go from there. So I've just got to find here the right part of it. I gave myself some markers. All right. So. So I had the thing on like 1.75 speed. So let's go to the first spot that I think is important. Can the Pope be a heretic? A few weeks ago, Cardinal Gerard Mueller, former prefect for the Congregation of the Faith, gave an interview to LifeSite News, in which he said that Pope Francis could be understood to have said material heresy. The Cardinal said some of Pope Francis's statements are formulated in such a way that they could reasonably be understood as material heresy, independent of their unclear subjective meaning. This is a very serious accusation. I think, sadly, so many people have been accustomed by now uh, to so many scandals from this papacy that this seems just like another, the, 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 um, the latest scandal. But Cardinal Mueller is the former prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. He is not an armchair theologian, but a high-ranking member of the church hierarchy who has dedicated his life to the study of doctrine, dogma, and theology. Okay, let's pause there for a second. Now, before we continue, ladies and gentlemen, if you are enjoying this show, please, would you consider becoming a paid member, either through YouTube memberships or through the Substack? Both of those include premium content. Listen to the end to find out what that is. And you help keep the lights on. And if I could make you feel guilty, my wife is expecting our sixth child. So there are many mouths to feed here, although I probably have the biggest mouth to feed. So it's maybe maybe more expensive to feed me than my kids. But all, all joking aside, thank you to all those who have supported me. There's little as $3 a month. I call that buy me a coffee. You can do that through the YouTube memberships. Throw a couple shekels my way. Get some premium, get some excellent content that you like and have access to the member only benefits. So check that out. All right, back to the show. Uh, important distinctions made by Father Nolan. Father or Cardinal Mueller, um, whether you agree with everything he's ever said or not, I'm not really here to do an apologetic for every single thing Father Mueller's ever said. I know there are smart theologians that would disagree with him on certain points, but the point is, we can't say that Cardinal Mueller doesn't understand his basic theology. And this is one thing that I constantly try to harp on when talking, especially about the Society of St. Pius X, when they'll say things like, 
well, Archbishop Lefebvre, you know, resisted the Pope this way, or he said this, you can't do that. That's against the church teaching. This is against Vatican I, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Here's the thing. If it was just simply anathema for the Pope to utter even material heresy, if it was anathema, if it was anathema for the Pope to even teach material heresy, then there'd be no way Cardinal Muller could just, there'd be no way he could even discuss it. There'd be no way. And it'd be very easy to point to something in church teaching and say, this is impossible. You know, people will say things like, well, uh, you know, Archbishop Lefebvre went against the Council of Trent because the Council of Trent said that the church wouldn't promulgate a bad liturgy. And it's like, well, why didn't they tell Archbishop Lefebvre he went against the Council of Trent then? Why did they have to trump up a bunch of pseudo-charges against Lefebvre and, and level a, a dubious excommunication at him if, if it was just that easy to say that he was a heretic by the Council of Trent? My point being is, you armchair theologians, like Father, Father Nolan talks about, if it was that easy to just say, well, this is impossible, look, there's a church teaching, then why don't they just do that? Why don't they just say Cardinal Mueller is a heretic for saying this? Why didn't they say Archbishop Lefebvre, you know, anathema because of the Council of Trent? Why wouldn't they just do that? You know they threw the book at him. Because there are debatable issues within the church. There are debatable issues within church theology, within church history, that just simply aren't that simple. And we need to stop pretending that they are. So there's point number one. I'm going to go to another part of the sermon here, which I think is quite important. And I recommend you go watch this in its whole after, uh, because it's quite good. Here we go. This question has already been settled and that the answer is no due to Christ's promise to St. Peter in Matthew 16, 18. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. And again in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, Christ says to Peter, I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brethren. So the proper understanding of these scripture passages, the argument goes, is that the Pope can never be a heretic, or even teach heresy because this would be contrary to Christ's promises in Scripture. Now, I wish that was true. In fact, I used to believe that was true for a while, uh, but recent events have forced me to study a little more deeply, and I've come to realize that this is not what the church teaches currently, nor has ever taught, and in fact, nor has ever believed for most of her existence. That the Pope cannot be a heretic is merely popular opinion, which became so after the declaration of papal infallibility at Vatican I, which is the, the Pope, the doctrine there is the Pope cannot be in error when teaching ex cathedra on faith and morals. That's a dogma of the church. I think we're all familiar with it. But nowhere in that definition is included the guarantee that the Pope cannot be a heretic or even that he cannot teach heresy. He cannot teach heresy ex cathedra. He cannot be in error teaching ex cathedra. But that's it. Anything below that, there can be error. Okay, some big words there. Anything below ex cathedra, there can be error. Well, is this true? Well, I actually think it's important for us to break down a term here. Because the term heresy and error, he uses both there. And these terms are used historically interchangeably. Today in the church, we talk about 
formal heresy, and we talk about the crime of heresy. And this is where we have, you know, the story of Martin Luther, for example, where he was definitely an error for a long time, but then he officially, canonically, criminally becomes a heretic based on stipulations X, Y, and Z. That sort of thing. We have the heresy of modernism, and Pope Pius X officially excommunicates and condemns um, Lyell and Loisy, or Tyrell, excuse me. Lyell's a different modernist from a different era, or a different, not modernist, he was a, anyway, behind the evolutionary hoax. Um, Tyrell and uh, Loisy, and they become official heretics for their adherence to modernism after repeated warnings, and it's a very particular, specific thing. But here's what St. Thomas Aquinas says about heresy. This is in the Summa, second part, second part, 11.1, okay? Uh, he defines heresy as a species of infidelity, infidelity in men who, having professed the faith of Christ, corrupt its dogmas. Let's repeat that. A species of infidelity in men who, having professed the faith of Christ, corrupt its dogmas. So, today, we would probably, on the lower end of things, we'd say, well, I can't say Father Martin is a heretic because he hasn't been officially censored, condemned, etc. But I would definitely say he promotes error. And that's true. But in the past, we'd probably just say Father Martin was a heretic. And I wish we would talk like that nowadays. <laughs> um, so, using this definition from Aquinas, if your neighbor, who is a baptized Catholic, and this is someone who, having professed the faith of Christ, so someone who is baptized because you're given the gift of faith, Someone who has said the creed at Mass as a baptized Catholic, you're professing the faith, it's pretty simple, corrupt its dogmas. Well, your neighbor is a Catholic who goes to Mass, is baptized, professed the Apostles' Creed, and says, um, you can contracept in good conscience. This is heresy. Now, is that person a formal heretic? No, they haven't been censured. Is that person in error? Yes. Is that person a heretic in the general broad sense? Yes, they are. This is how it's always been understood historically in the church. And he's going to go into an example here. So in that sense, can a pope teach error, which historically we have looked at as a type of heresy? And again, Aquinas says, it is a species of infidelity in men who having professed the faith of Christ corrupt its dogma. Corrupt its dogmas. Not profess a new dogma. Not promulgate formally a dogma which is impossible in the Catholic faith, but corrupt. Interesting word, choice of words. Let's continue with Father Nolan. And I'm going to go to a part here um, where he talks about papal primacy because people are inevitably going to bring up papal primacy. So what does it say? And Honorius. In some breveries, all the way up to the 18th century, Honorius was mentioned as a heretic in certain Matins lessons. <clears throat> Now, it would be important to note that while Honorius was recognized as a heretic by a council of the church, the pope who ratified that council, Leo II, downgraded the charge of, uh, from heresy to negligence in support of heresy. Uh, so to be clear, never in the history of the church has there been a case of a reigning pope in office who was definitively declared as a heretic. Uh, but what is significant is that for over a thousand years, the church had no problem publicly stating the idea that a pope could be a heretic. 
For most of the church's history, the faithful and the hierarchy of the church uh, were able clearly to distinguish between the indestructibility of the Catholic faith, which was divinely guaranteed to the entire magisterium, and the personal failure of a particular pope who represented only a part of the magisterium. So this is really important. And I'm really happy that Father Nolan illuminated this for us because this brings up a lot of different issues here. So, number one, a council, whichever council it was in the 6th, 6th, 7th century, declares that Pope Honorius, infamous pope, was a heretic, okay? The same pope who ratified the council downgrades the charge from a formal heretic to someone who basically was tolerant or promoted or whatever, facilitated heresy, whatever the words were. There's one thing that's very interesting there because... Does that mean that the council was not infallible? I mean, I'm just putting this out there. When people, you know, they'll pick and choose little, little quotes here and there from councils. Well, hold on a second. We have a pope who ratifies a council, and then we have a pope who says something that's different than, than, than that's in the council. This shows us that not everything in an ecumenical council is infallible in the sense of it being de fide faith and morals. That's important to remember for those of you who exalt Second Vatican Council to a super council, uh, that if you disagree with parts of it, somehow you're outside the church. That's insane. Because if that were the case, the Pope ratified a council, and then he sort of seems to disagree with it. Now, you might say, well, he's the Pope, he can do that. Well, is the Pope above the dogmas of the church? Because that's not a dogma of the church either. So there's a problem we get to here. Furthermore, whether or not he was a formal heretic, which he was not officially labeled as later on, for a thousand years, in the prayers of the priests and the brothers and things like that in the office of the church, Pope Honorius was talked about as if he was at least someone who promoted heresy, if not a heretic himself, and this was totally fine. And it is the case in church, in church teaching that if something persists as a catechism, the office, the liturgy, for a long period of time and is accepted by all peacefully, for a long period of time, this thing cannot be heretical. So are catechisms infallible? No, catechisms are not infallible. But can we say something like the Catechism of the Council of Trent? Uh, it, is, it is certain it contains no error. We can say that not just because it's based off of the Council of Trent, but because it's based because it's been peacefully accepted and used for centuries and centuries, and the Holy Ghost would not allow us to use something to teach the faithful that would lead them astray. Do we think the Holy Ghost allowed these priests to pray a prayer that was in error for 1,000 years? That in, its, in and of itself would be some sort of condemnation of the indefectibility of the Church. And this is where we get in with these hyper-papalist types of our modern day who are squeamish by even considering this, by trying to defend every possible thing John Paul II, Ratzinger, uh, Pope Francis have ever done, and have this sort of hyper, you know, inflated understanding of the First Vatican Council, we get into a point where these individuals are going to have to at least implicitly imply that in the past, that there were errors spreading throughout the church for thousands of years. In official liturgical text. This is a big problem. Um, so I think this is just all very important that he brought this up, if not for a conclusive answer, but for the fact that Father Nolan is showing us that when it comes to what is guaranteed and what is actually the case and lived out in the church's history, it's much more complicated than, look at me, I'm picking and choosing from Vatican I. We're going to get to Vatican, we're going to get to Vatican I right here. So this is what Father Nolan says, and then we're going to read something. Papal primacy is an entirely different matter from infallibility and has nothing to do with error or soundness of doctrine, but simply power and scope of authority. 
And papal primacy was also defined at Vatican I. And I will read uh, the authoritative uh, uh, declaration as follows. Wherefore, we teach and declare that by divine ordinance, the Roman church possesses a preeminence of ordinary power over every other church. And that this jurisdictional power of the Roman pontiff is both episcopal and immediate. Both clergy and faithful of whatever right and dignity, singly and collectively, are bound to submit to this power by the duty of hierarchical subordination and true obedience. And not only in matters concerning faith and morals, but also in those which regard the discipline and governance of the church throughout the world. So this is where the rubber meets the road. You look at the First Vatican Council, and I have the actual documents for the council in front of me here, and you're thinking to yourself, well, hold on. It seems pretty much stamped it, locked it. We just got to do everything the Pope says. Well, there's an important caveat in there, which Father Nolan read. It says in the documents, it talks about true obedience. Why would it talk about true obedience? Why would it talk about not just obedience? Why can't we just, why can't we blindly obey? Why can't we just do whatever the Pope says, no matter what, and it's always good? Why can't we just accept uncritically everything the Pope and the hierarchy give to the faithful without any critical thinking? Why not? There are many people who would interpret the First Vatican Council and say, well, if I don't understand Vatican II or if I don't understand Vatican I, that's on me. It's impossible that anyone who's in the church hierarchy could say something that I shouldn't believe. Is that really the case? What about the divine help that the Pope has given? This is an important thing to remember. And Father Nolan's going to talk about that right here. Let me just pull this up. But Father, the Church teaches the Pope is given a special assistance by the Holy Ghost to govern the Church. Cardinal Ratzinger says in Donum Veritatis, Divine assistance is given, in particular, to the Roman Pontiff as pastor of the whole Church, even when exercising ordinary magisterium. Yes, of course it is. Divine assistance is offered to the Pope, and he is quite capable of resisting it on account of pride, ambition, sin, and so on, as so many popes have done throughout history. The papacy has been filled by the worst of criminal sinners, all of whom have had this same divine assistance available to them, and they have squandered it. Nowhere in the church will you find an official teaching that the pope cannot make a mistake in his ordinary jurisdictional power. You'll find uh, ultramontanists who will say this, quotes from some saints that appear to support this, but it has never been held by the church as definitive, and it never will be. History and reality prevent it. Okay. As they say on Twitter, big if true. So Father Nolan is saying, never has it been held that the Pope is protected in his decisions on ordinary magisterium and the governance of the church meaning we have no infallible divine guarantee that the Pope can't actually do something wrong when it comes to his normal operating when he's not acting ex-cathedra. So Father Nolan is basically saying, uh, you know, it's not the teaching of the church. Now, if Father Nolan is wrong on that, 
then Father Nolan is in error. Father Nolan's a heretic. I don't think Father Nolan's a heretic. I think he's telling the truth. He has a better theological training than I do. I may be an SSPX guy, but uh, I can't deny the fact that the fraternity has a pretty good seminary. I'm actually interviewing later on today. It'll be aired sometime in the next couple days. Father Maudsley, ordained in the priestly fraternity of St. Peter. I think they're pretty good as far as their theological trainings go goes. So, I mean, if Father Nolan is telling the truth, this is important. Now, what about true obedience, though? Because the, sec the First Vatican Council talks about true obedience. What does this mean? If the Pope has divine help but can reject that, and there are times when the Pope can basically tell us to go astray, and we should go back to this, we should go back to this definition from Aquinas, corrupting of the dogmas, not just promulgating something that is officially stamped it locked at black and white can lead you to hell, but just a corruption. I mean, have we not seen corruptions of dogmas? I think we have. We've at least seen undermining of dogmas. So let's see what else Father Nolan has to say here. He's going to talk about true obedience. But what about obedience? That definition says the faithful are bound to submit to the Pope by true obedience. That's right. True obedience. And there's a difference between the virtue of obedience and the mere act of obedience. There are many saints who have taught that it can be permissible, even necessary, to resist the Pope. St. Thomas Aquinas and Robert Bellarmine among them. Now, that would be the topic for an entirely different sermon, a topic on a sermon on toxic obedience, which is rampant in the church these days. Uh, but the point of this sermon is to show that the popes can and have made grave, even catastrophic errors, which have harmed the church for centuries and arguably caused the loss of millions of souls. Right governance of the church is not covered by papal infallibility. Okay, that's a money line there. Right governance of the church is not covered by papal infallibility. And in Father Nolan's opinion, and I agree with his opinion, it's possible for a pope to make decisions where he could lose millions of souls. I think that has happened in the last 60, 70 years since the council, easily. Say what you will about the true Vatican II, say what you will about the good Novus Ordo, etc., etc., etc. The fact is, is that the decisions that were made were followed by consequences, and those consequences were millions of people leaving the church. If they die outside the Catholic Church or in a state of mortal sin, they are lost forever, as per the teachings of the church. And I am going to be doing a show in the next week or two that I'm getting together, getting all my notes together to do it in an airtight way on the nature of extra ecclesiam nulla salus, outside the church there is no salvation, which is a teaching of the church which is as serious as a heart attack. We're going to talk about everything, including what about baptism of desire? What about... Um, a sort of miraculous, invisible conversions that we've seen in history. How does that play in? We're going to talk about all of that. But it is a dogma of the church that outside the church, there is no salvation. So if the popes make decisions that have consequences, like has happened since the council, and people leave the church in droves, the pope's decision and bad governance is at least partially culpable for the loss of millions of souls. Now, the pope is in a, in a position where... <laughs> I, will, I don't ever want to be Pope for many reasons. But also, anytime you're a leader of an organization, you can make decisions that seem like the right decision and you're not going to be culpable for each individual decision. I'm not saying that 
all the blood's on his hands or something like that. I'm just saying the result of those is a fact. So this is an amazing argument. I mean, this is Father Nolan FSSP, but I don't know. He, he seems like he's auditioning for Father Nolan FSSPX because he's giving us this great explanation here about the Pope himself can be the, at least the indirect cause of the loss of souls. And Vatican I talks about true obedience. Do we think true obedience would necessitate that we do what the Pope says when we have moral certainty that that thing's going to lead to the loss of millions of souls? You follow the logic here. I think we have a pretty good justification for Archbishop Lefebvre, which seems to be more and more vindication about him every day. Pope John Paul II says, don't do the consecrations. Archbishop Lefebvre says, the souls depend on it. I know my soul depends on it. If it wasn't for Archbishop Lefebvre where I live, I don't know what I'd do. I don't know how I'd raise my kids in the faith. I really don't know what I'd do. The diocese is a dumpster fire. Yes, you can make it through if you grit your teeth and bear it, but the odds of getting your kids through and remaining Catholic and having a full formation and not being scandalized at mass and the heresy and the sacrilege and the bad formation in the schools. I mean, it's just, it is, it is, it is hell on earth when it comes to sound traditional Catholic formation where I live. It's just a fact. And the SSPX are there. Archbishop Lefebvre made the right decision for me. I'm just being honest. I know my personal experience doesn't justify everyone's decisions. I'm just saying if, if there is a state of necessity for the formation of souls and the salvation of souls and the raising of my kids, I cannot help but say otherwise that that has been the case for me. And if the Pope is not protected by divine guarantee in making his decisions about governance, and we know from church history that one can resist the Pope, and we know that consecrating bishops without a papal mandate is totally fine if you consider church history and still, for example, the Eastern Catholic churches, you put all those things together. I don't know how someone can call Archbishop Lefebvre schismatic at this point when we really think about these things all fleshed out. Fascinating. Now, here's the last part we're going to go from Father Nolan, and then I'm going to give you my example to finish this off um, about papal heresy, where we've actually seen something like an implicit teaching of heresy, and it's not under uh, Pope Francis. It's under John Paul II. So here is um, the last clip from Father Nolan. Have one. That would be false. The Pope can teach heresy. He just cannot teach it ex cathedra. Christ promised the gates of hell would not prevail, but he didn't say how close they might come. <laughs> That's funny, Father. <clears throat> now, the other error uh, to avoid falling into is the trap of ignoring heresy right in front of our very eyes or justifying it to an absurd degree. The Pope cannot teach heresy, and since this man is the Pope, then what he is saying cannot be heresy. Side note. Nice dig at the Pope's planners here, Father Nolan. I bet you don't keep up on social media because you're probably a holy priest who have better things to do, but thank you for this. Somehow, against all reason and logic, we must square the circle. We must show how everything he's doing is for the good of the church, how it corresponds with all the doctrine of the past, etc. Don't fall into these mental gymnastics. Okay. Excellent. Thank you, Father Nolan. Okay, so... He says there, yes, the Pope can teach heresy, just not ex cathedra. So we're going to look at an example here of something. And I want you to just consider this with me and be patient. And I'm going to go through some things. So this is from, and I'm just putting this out there for speculation. I'm not calling anybody a heretic, whatever. So John Paul II, and you'll see here, 
1999. Let's make this bigger. It says, Dear brothers and sisters in Augsburg, Germany, a very important event is taking place at this moment. Representatives of the Catholic Church and the Lutheran World Federation are signing a joint declaration on one of the principal points which have divided Catholics and Lutherans, the doctrine of justification by faith. So, a joint declaration. This is a milestone on the difficult path to reestablishing full unity among Christians, and it is highly significant that it is taking place in the exact site where in 1530 a decisive page in the Lutheran Reform was written with the Augsburg Confession. This document presents a sound basis for continuing the ecumenical theological research and for addressing the remaining problems with a better founded hope of resolving them in the future. It is also a valuable contribution to the purification of historical memory and to our common witness. And he says, I would like to thank the Lord for his, this immediate intermediate goal on our journey, one that is difficult but rich in joy, unity, and, and communion among Christians. It offers, in fact, a significant response to the will of Christ, who before his passion prayed to the Father that his disciples would be one. Personally, I think that's a misquote of what the Jesus meant. He means they all join the Catholic Church, not that we all find some big church, big tent thing. But anyway, uh, he says... Um, I offer my thanks to all who prayed and worked to make this declaration possible. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, so let's look. Let's look at what the declaration actually says. So here's a line. Here is um, whatever it is, uh, uh, paragraph 26. According to Lutheran understanding, just, God justifies sinners in faith alone. In faith, they place their trust wholly in their creator and redeemer and thus live in communion with him. God himself affects faith as he brings forth such trust by his creative word, etc., etc., etc. So, according to Lutherans, God justifies sinners in faith alone. Well, I'm going to read something from the, the uh, Council of Trent. Let's see what the Council of Trent says. If anyone's... Sorry, there's a phone call coming through there. It says, If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it was not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema. If it has an anathema, and it's at an ecumenical council, ratified by the Pope, it's infallible, stamped at log that can't erase it. Has to be properly understood, but this is pretty easy to understand. If you believe you're justified by faith alone, anathema. Hold on a sec. Here's a joint declaration saying, Lutherans believe that sinners are justified by faith alone. Now you can go to the next paragraph. And this is a gobbledygook, total Vatican II spirit, nonsensical thing. And here's what it says. It's impossible to understand. Apparently this is the Catholic understanding. Thus, here it is. Thus justifying grace never becomes a human possession to which one could appeal over against God. While Catholic teaching emphasizes the renewal of life by justifying grace, this renewal in faith, hope, and love, so those are the three supernatural virtues, is always dependent on God's unfathomable grace and contributes nothing to justification about which one could boast before God. So we can contribute nothing to our justification. Hold on a second. Let's look at what the First Vatican Council says. You are anathema if you say that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his will. So you at least have to contribute your will. You at least have to do something to be saved. It has to be an act of the will. It's not just by... The act of faith is literally an act of the will. So we cannot say you cannot be justified by faith alone. But <laughs> here is the joint declaration saying 
even the renewal of faith, talking about baptism, is what it's the context. This can contribute nothing to justification. No, we actually have to have the faith in order to be saved. I didn't actually think of this, but let's just look here at the Athanasian Creed. I'm going to bring this up here quick. If you look at the Athanasian Creed, why would the Christian Reformed Church do it? They're not even Catholic. Anyway, the Athanasian Creed. Um, so, here it says, Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith, which faith except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt that he shall perish everlastingly. So you have to at least, you're not justified by faith, but what this thing is saying is, or not justified by faith alone, but what this thing is saying is that even faith, hope, and love contribute nothing to our justification. That's a little bit of a dubious statement. Now, you could understand it in an orthodox sense if you wanted to do some backflips, but hold on a second here, because there is actually... Um, uh, some will say, well, this was not actually the church okaying this sort of um, theology. This was just some sort of ecumenical thing, and they just agree to this document where they both present their ideas. But John Paul II is saying this is a step to unity. I don't know how it's a step to unity unless we're unified on something. And if we actually look at, there was an article um, by Catholic Culture, and I just have a copy and paste of here. I'll just read it for you. Cardinal Cassidy delivered this address on September 17, 1999, in order to identify the main points of agreement between the Catholic Church and the Lutheran World Federation. So what did they actually agree upon in their joint declaration? He clarifies that this document is not a compromise on the part of the Church on the doctrine of justification. So this article from Catholic Culture, respectfully Catholic Culture, you've done some great work, but some of your stuff from back in the day is like super modernist, or at least modernist adjacent. Anyway, here's what Cardinal Cassidy said. Or this is according to Cardinal Cassidy, I should say. The joint declaration is not a new confessional statement, nor it is, a, is it a compromise document. It seeks to summarize the results of the Lutheran-Roman Catholic dialogue on this doctrine over a period of some 30 years by stating what each community holds as its faith and basic truths of this doctrine, doctrine and showing that the two explications of these basic truths are not contrary to one another. So hold on a sec. The Lutheran understanding and the Catholic understanding according to this document, which the Pope is praising and telling the faithful is a good thing, so at least implicitly teaching them, they're saying it shows that we don't have any differences on this. That's not true, because the Council of Trent says if you hold to the Lutheran understanding of justification, let him be anathema. goes on, the joint declaration in fact states that it has the following intention, to show that on the basis of their dialogue, the subscribing Lutheran churches and the Roman Catholic Church are now, are now able to articulate a common understanding of our justification, a common understanding, okay, of our justification by God's grace through faith in Christ. It does not cover all that either church teaches about justification. It does encompass a consensus on basic truths of the, of the doctrine of justification, a consensus on basic truths. We have a consensus with the Lutherans on basic truths about justification. Are we both anathematized then by the Council of Trent? and shows that the remaining differences in its explication are no longer the occasion for doctrinal condemnation. So, Lutheran justification no longer needs condemnation, even though it's infallibly condemned, because of a, doc because of a joint declaration signed by a fake priest or a fake priestess, whoever from the Lutheran Commission or whatever it was, with the Catholic Church, 
and Pope John Paul II at a Wednesday audience at the Angelus or whatever it was, says, this is great. Praise be to God for this intervention for Christian unity. Is this an example of the Pope teaching heresy? I would say it's yes and no in the in the lower sense, in the sense that Father, Father Nolan's talking about. It's, clear, it's clearly not ex cathedra. But yes, the Pope is promoting this joint declaration, which is heretical. I mean, it's very explicitly so. According to Cardinal Cassidy, so people will say, well, you're not interpreting it properly. I'm not interpreting it at all. I'm going off of what the actual church authorities in charge of it said we're supposed to think about it. And they're saying, this document shows there's no condemnation of Lutheran justification anymore. I go to the Council of Trent and I find an anathema. So who should I agree with? Who should I believe? All right. This is just one example. I hope this has been helpful. And uh, please, if you do like this show, you can consider being a member on YouTube for as little as $3 a month. I think that level of the membership is called Buy Me a Coffee. The next one is called Buy Me a Couple Coffees. I think it's at $8. And the other one is called Buy Me a Coffee Maker, which is very generous. And it's I'm just trying to go with the coffee theme, making dad jokes here. You can also sign up for my Substack, and you can be a paid subscriber. Thank you to all those who have signed up. Um, if you are a paid subscriber, you receive the... Uh, long-form interviews that I do with people. For example, I did one on the secret or unveiled history of the uh, Guadalupe mystery through the mythology of the Aztecs fulfilled with the actual appearance of Our Lady of Guadalupe. It's very fascinating stuff with the authors of that book. That was uploaded yesterday for all the subscribers, um, and uh, it was not received. It's not received until later for the you know, general public populace. I'm doing an interview with Father Maudsley about the conversion of the Jews in the end times, which will be uploaded later today or tomorrow for paid subscribers, both YouTube members and Substack members, and then eventually a day later for others. And then there will be premium articles available at the Substack. If you're someone who doesn't really care too much about reading articles and stuff, that's why I have the YouTube membership thing, because that's just easy for you if you want to use this one platform. But if you're somebody who likes Substack, which is a good platform, and you want to have some premium articles, they'll be there as well. So lots of stuff there for you. And also, if I'm being honest, it just helps me keep the lights on. So, okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you, Father Nolan, for this. Go check out the Glad Trad podcast. You look it up. Just look up Glad Trad podcast on YouTube. You'll find it. This sermon's kind of going viral. He posted it last night. It's got like, I don't know. At this moment, it's got 13,000 views, which is huge. His channel's quite small. So so that's that's a big deal. Um and it's just growing and growing and growing. So it's going to keep going. I bet you it's going to get up there in the 100,000 or so. And pray for Father Nolan because um, he said nothing wrong. But, you know, personnel is policy, as they say. And if the hierarchs tell the bishop of whatever diocese he's in, they don't like his personnel, then the policy is going to be get rid of Father Nolan. So there we go. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, let me know what you think of the comment. This has been the Kennedy Report. Until next time, God bless. <laughs>